0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit dot org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at nine a.m. to discuss national security. And we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We have a really interesting show for you today. We're going to take a deep look at the oceans of the world and why oceans matter for American national security. Now, you might think that's obvious, that security on the oceans is covered by the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard. And that is true, but it's more than that, much, much more. When we study national security, we must consider all four tools of national power. That would be diplomacy, the power of information, military power, and economic power, all of these tools and how they are used. The oceans on our planet are directly connected to not only military power, but also diplomatic and economic power. We'll take a look at the science of studying the oceans, how oceans contribute to the U.S. economy, and how the oceans are vital aspects of our national security in both the hard and soft power arena. We'll also consider some of the advancing science and technology being used today and what might be available in the future to assist the United States in protecting the marine environs. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet. Rear Admiral Gallaudet is the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, and he hosts the the American Blue Economy podcast. He also serves on a number of boards, including the Director's Council for the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. From 2017 to 2021, Admiral Gallaudet served as the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and the Deputy National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration Administrator. And from 2017 to 2019, he also served as the Acting Under Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and the NOAA Administrator. As the acting administrator, he led the agency, which is comprised of 20,000 federal employees and contractors, in managing the nation's fisheries, coastal resources, and waterways, weather satellites, the weather services, and environmental research. He was overseeing a $6 billion annual budget, and he led the operations of 18 environmental satellites, 16 oceanographic ships, nine aircraft, 450 boats, 400 technical divers six supercomputers computers, and over a dozen laboratories, and several hundred field sites across the country. As the deputy administrator, he led NOAA's Blue Economy activities to advance marine transportation, sustainable seafood production, ocean exploration and mapping, marine tourism and recreation, and coastal resilience. He also directed NOAA's support to the administration's Indo-Pacific Command Pacific Strategy. He oversaw NOAA's Arctic research, operations, and engagement, and led the execution of NOAA's science and technology strategies for both artificial intelligence, uncrewed systems, cloud data, and citizen science. Prior to serving at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, Admiral Gallaudet served for 32 years in the U.S. Navy, completing his career as the oceanographer of the Navy on the staff of the Chief of Naval Operations. Tim Gallaudet earned a bachelor's degree from the U.S. Naval Academy and master and doctoral degrees from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, all in the field of oceanography. Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: John, it's great to be here. So where are you sitting this morning for our show? I am in North Beach, Maryland, a nice little town south of Annapolis, and I have a house right on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay.
1: All right. So you're looking at the ocean this morning, is that right?
2: I'm looking at the bay, it's an estuary and uh, I haven't been able to get a a place to live that's far from the water. It's just in my salt water is in my my veins.
1: <laughs> I I understand completely. Uh so Admiral, let me start by asking you some some background questions. You majored in oceanography uh in undergrad at the US Naval Academy. And then you chose to study oceanography uh for your entire educational path, a master's degree, uh, doctoral degrees—it it really has been the guiding uh, part of your of your educational background and really your profession. What was the catalyst that drew you into this field of oceanography, and could you explain to our listeners exactly what oceanography does in the world of science?
2: That's right, John. Thanks. Yes, I've been drawn to the ocean ever since I was I was young. I grew up in Southern California, and I spent a lot of time as a competitive swimmer, training in the ocean, surfing, and and uh, just enjoying. Our beautiful coastline in Southern California, and that just made me want to study it and live on the live near the ocean and, and do work on the ocean. So that drew me to the Naval Academy m- more to study and work on the ocean than necessarily to serve in the military. And uh, but it's just always been fascinated by the sea, as so many people are drawn to it. And um, and I, I've never stayed away from it. As I, as I mentioned, I've always lived on the ocean and I loved and enjoyed working on the ocean.
1: So, for a guy who attended the Naval Academy with the intent of learning about more about the oceans, uh, you had a
2: pretty good career, <laughs> retiring as a rear yeah. admiral
1: and the oceanographer of the Navy.
2: <laughs> that's yeah. I guess it stuck, right? Um, you know, I and that was really blessed. Uh, of course, all of us who serve like you have in um, in the Navy and, and came from the Naval Academy, we're only carried by the sailors and and people who support us, and and uh, that's what happened to me. I just had some wonderful people that carried me along my career, and I uh, just try to pay it forward, and that's why I didn't say no to your request to be on the show. (laughs) Okay.
1: So in your opinion, what are some of the most fascinating science-based projects that are happening right now with regard to oceanography?
2: Right. The ocean is very interesting to me because so much of it is unexplored. We we have not even explored 80% of the ocean volume. So there's 80% of the planet that we know nothing about, and the same for the seafloor. The seafloor, uh, we've only mapped uh, not even 50% of the U.S.'s part of the seafloor in the exclusive economic zone. And so that that's interesting to me at No at NOAA, where I worked at uh, the top ocean agency in the country. We were finding new species every year, and I'm not talking about like little little plankton. I'm talking we, we actually discovered a new species of killer whale in 2020. Think about that—it's a small killer whale that lives in Antarctica. So the this, the fact that we know so little about our own Earth, and meanwhile we have mapped the surface of Moon and the Mars to a higher resolution than we know the own uh, the ocean's own depths. And so I was committed when I worked at NOAA to to, to reverse that. And I led a, you know working with the White House, I was the head of a government agency. We uh, started initiated a national strategy and plan to map, explore, and characterize our oceans. And what that means is taking ships with multi-beam sonar and and mapping the ocean and discovering new features that have never been seen, like undersea seamounts that are significant for navigation. We had two submarines that have actually crashed and run aground into seamounts within the last 15 years. Very not, Not good, of course, from a national security standpoint. And then also to characterize the ocean, to Study it in detail up close with deep diving remotely operated vehicles and and increasingly drones, uh, autonomous underwater vehicles. And all that is still happening right now in a really big way. So that whole national strategy to explore and study the ocean is continuing and I'm supporting it in my own contractor consulting capacity.
1: Any other uh, science projects that uh, you're aware of that uh, just are fascinating for you?
2: Oh, there's, where, where, when do you want me to stop? You know, one of the <laughs> things I think, John, I lo- what I was really fascinating is this new field, and I led a, an agency strategy to advance it, uh, that's uh, about environmental DNA. So it used to be, uh, well, you know, the Human Genome Project took over 10 years and nearly two decades, actually, and uh, in total, and millions of dollars to map the human genome. But now, like 23andMe, we can go and find DNA of, of different species and analyze it just like that with next generation gene sequencing. And so what's occurring right now for the ocean is, is we can just scoop up seawater and look at the DNA in it and get a good assessment of the different species that are in a given region, as well as how, much, how many of them are or the abundance. And, and that's really fascinating because heretofore to study the ocean and learn about all the life in it, we would have to take ships with trawls and bring up that, that, that sea life and count it and study it under a microscope. And now you can do that with next-generation gene sequencing in, in, in nearly an instant. It uh, mm-hmm. takes a little more time than that, but relatively speaking, it's just fascinating.
1: So I mentioned uh, in, in my introduction that you served as the acting administrator for the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency, or, or NOAA, as it's usually uh, referred to. Uh, you left that post in 2021. What, what exactly is NOAA? And why does NOAA matter so much for America's national security and, and economic uh, vibrancy?
2: Yes, uh, thanks, John. I had just testified in front of the House uh, Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Uh, Chairman Lucas uh, of Oklahoma put forward a, a bill to make NOAA independent and move it from the Department of Commerce. And one of the things I talked about uh, during the hearing was that NOAA is like NASA, but for the ocean, atmosphere, and environment. And it really should be put on par with NASA in terms of being independent and having the recognition it does, because as the top environmental and ocean agency, it, again, it, NOAA every day is affecting American lives through either natu- natu- national, natural, or economic security impacts. For example, we help manage with our data and science $200 billion annual fish, fisheries in every coastal area, the Great Lakes, and in our territories. We, uh, we I say we, I still feel a strong part of the attachment to the agency. Of course, we have environmental satellites. They're constantly monitoring, 18 of them, uh, weather and space weather, which affects communications, and weather, which affects public safety and economics with respect to agriculture and shipping, etc., And uh, as well as ocean, we map uh, the ocean for nautical charts to enable the marine transportation system, which provides 90 percent of the transport of goods throughout the world. So that's just a small snapshot of what the agency does for Americans. I'd like to say, you know, NASA is great. They perform a wonderful space mission, but they don't their mission does not affect every American life every day. And that's that's that holds true for NOAA. That's 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 the impact they have.
1: So I think if I remember from that, my intro was about a six billion dollar budget uh, at NOAA uh, every year. Is that is that enough funding? Uh, does NOAA need more considering the tremendous economic uh, impact that NOAA's work has on the American economy?
2: Well, that was the running gunfight I was in during my whole time <laughs> <laughs> at the at the agency, you know, because. Uh, the prior administration made some big cuts to science agencies, and uh, I was constantly working to get, get more funding, and Congress did help us with that. And I think the agency now has about $7 billion, $7 billion of funding annually. And, uh, and at that House hearing, I I did testify that, that, that more is needed because I think there's a high return on investment for the American people for what uh, that great agency does.
1: Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet, who is the former acting administrator of NOAA and the oceanographer of the Navy. And we're discussing the oceans of the world and their importance to many aspects of national security and the economy. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. All right, Admiral, let's, uh, let's get into some of the science. Uh, could you explain how climate change is impacting the oceans?
2: Oh, yes. Climate change is having a significant impact on the oceans. I saw it firsthand that we see that there's warming occurring in different basins and it's driving fish to migrate north. In Alaska, for example, that's a real problem because some of the fish stocks are migrating or moving. They're not migrating. They're moving uh, outside of the range of the fishermen's vessels where, where they have traditionally um stayed in port and, and, and conducted their, their uh, vitally economically important missions from or or work. And, uh, and so that's a problem. Then you see also uh, this phenomena of acidification of the ocean, where as it absorbs more carbon, the, uh, and becomes more acidic in the water, some species just don't fare well when that occurs, especially certain types of shellfish. So that that's having an impact. Um, and, uh, there are others too. A lot of it's unknown, though. The, there's there's several there there are a variety of research efforts out there that are working to understand these changes, and uh, and a lot of it there's just a great deal of uncertainty. So the more research we can do, then the better understanding we have of these changes in the ocean, the better we'll be able to adapt to them.
1: Uh, can you can you talk a little bit more about uh, some of the science uh, projects that you know that are going on to do research on uh, climate impacts on the ocean?
2: Sure, sure. Well, probably the, one of the biggest areas of impact is up in the Arctic Ocean. And in fact, I have a kind of a history here. When I first came to the Pentagon uh, as a commander, I helped the Navy stand up a task force, uh, task force climate change, where we were primarily concerned about the Arctic and the fact that ice was melting so quick up there that we just might have more emissions uh, because it was opening up access. It's still occurring. it's, it's The changes occurring in the Arctic are are four times greater than those in the rest of the world. That's Mm -hmm. how fast it's warming and ice is melting. And then, of course, that creates opportunities and challenges. We may be called to go up there more, but we don't have all the capabilities we need. For example, the uh, Coast Guard is seeking to uh, build more icebreakers, and that's a big budget issue. These are billion-dollar ships. And we don't have many, and some of them are beyond their service life. That, and so, meanwhile, Russia's up there with 40 or plus icebreakers, and they want to, they want to capitalize on these gains and open up that Northern Sea route where there's natural gas deposits, and they could potentially have a new shipping route to Asia from Europe. And already, vessels have been increasing their, their, um, their transits of that region in the summer. So, uh, there. So, studying the science about that ice change is really important. And NOAA has conducted a number of missions with international partners to study that ice loss and the and the weather and the ocean changes that are occurring up there.
1: And and I know that uh, that China has also been extremely interested in uh, the fact that the Arctic Ocean is opening up more and more each year. Uh, that that dramatically cuts down on transit time for the products from there. Uh, coastal uh, ports over to Europe and the eastern uh, coast of the United States, uh, have have you seen, I mean, from your perspective, uh, having served in these roles, uh, is China investing sort of heavily in, in the Arctic Ocean uh, operational capabilities as well?
2: Well, yes. And the fact is they're investing everywhere and, and they're they're they not hiding the fact that they want to be the dominant global power and so you see them not only in the Arctic and they, they have called themselves a near Arctic nation there's no such thing <laughs> they really don't uh, ha- don't have the right to have a permanent presence up there as as Arctic nations do and so but, but they're they're making that claim nonetheless uh, and you, and you see their incursions and really uh, malign behavior all across the globe and uh, but yeah that's happening in the Arctic too
1: so a little bit more on the on the science of climate change and how it's impacting uh, the world's oceans. Uh, you, you mentioned the Arctic Ocean. Uh, now, if we move to the land, uh, Greenland, uh, there are some uh, some oceanographers that I know that are very concerned about uh, some of the glacial melt coming off of Greenland and also the warming that's happening in Antarctica. Uh, from your science based background, uh, what, what do you see happening on those two massively huge uh, bodies of uh, ice?
2: Right, right. Well, the the ice sheets in, in in Greenland, the massive ice sheet is losing mass at a pretty phenomenal rate, and uh, and then that, of course that's happening too. The ice sheets in Antarctica, and that's of course we want to know, be able to predict those changes better, uh, because that will contribute pretty significantly to sea level rise. Melting Arctic ice doesn't contrib- contribute to global sea level rise because it's it's in the ocean still, right there, right. But this ice mass. Ice mass in Greenland and Antarctica will because it 's not in the ocean right now, and as it melts it becomes it, it, it go ahead, it, it contributes to that overall mass uh, difference from of the ocean and therefore the rising of it. It, it, it i got I'll make a point here on climate change though it's important to know that um I, I just really am upset that the discussion and narrative in the media is so alarmist. Well, actually it's very polarized it's you either have alarmists or deniers and i I think a middle of the road approach is really where we want to be which is objective and and science-based so we know that changes are occurring for example high tide flooding in america is increasingly occurring around the coast and uh, some of that's due to sea level rise some of that's due to um, increasing populations and the subsidence of land and so knowing really specifically what's occurring and being able to predict with certainty what those changes are, I think, is what is most important so we can adapt. But I don't think we do ourselves any good by either denying the change and calling it a big <laughs> conspiracy against big oil or becoming so alarmist to think that, that it's an existential threat. The, the term existential threat I would apply probably to Russia right now and the risk of nuclear war, uh, but not, not, a, a, not climate change. That's something we can get around, and we are already mitigating. And you see our our missions. even the Biden administration has recently changed its uh, accepted emission scenario for the future, which they have projected to actually decrease. So I think a real balanced conversation about climate change is necessary. And and that's why I want to contribute here.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that, 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 that's great. Uh, so, Admiral, you covered uh, in some detail, you know, the, the changes that are happening to the oceans. Uh, you did mention, you know, fossil fuels uh, and whatnot. For the oceans, what are the ramifications of these changes? I mean, you have a podcast on the blue economy. Uh, that economy relies either completely or at least pretty heavily on a healthy ocean ecology. Uh, what What concerns do you have about the health of the oceans right now?
2: Right. Well, OK. The, thank you, John. The, the health of the oceans is important for a number of factors. And, and the risks are not only due to climate change. You know, there's, there's pollution, for example, a lot of it, plastic pollution. And the main contributor is, is China and, and the countries in Asia. And, and so that's something at NOAA we got, our, we got ourselves behind. The president signed the Save Our Seas Act when I was uh, the administrator in 2018 and he signed it again. Uh, in 2020, I believe, and this is the act that authorizes NOAA's program to clean up marine debris mm. and plastic waste and prevent it from occurring in the first place by working uh, with other nations in, in assisting with their waste disposal programs. So the ocean health uh, in terms of like plastic and the and harm it does, uh, it, harm that does on sea life is important. And it's just not because we care about uh, the, the national treasure that is marine life, like whales, uh, endangered species like uh, turtles and and such, it's because this is a very critical national security issue with partner nations that depend on the ocean for most of their economy. So you think about the the Pacific island countries that are really our primary allies and hedge against China in that and that in their backyard. And you're seeing c- countries like the Solomon Islands who are siding with China now. Uh, we're trying to keep. Palau in the U.S. sphere and the Marshall Islands, for example, and all these nations depend on the ocean and unhealthy oceans, which are being impacted partially by climate change, but also pollution. Uh, are are That's 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 something that Noah contributed to in a big way, and I I purposely, with the Indo-Pacific Command, worked to use the 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 great power, the soft power you mentioned of our environmental science and uh, ocean health initiatives, like coral reef conservation and and combating illegal fishing, as well as um, combating the marine pollution and debris, all of those programs we led at the national level were, were capabilities and capacities we, were, we helped to build in these other nations. And the more we helped them make, keep their oceans healthy, the, the more they wanted to be our partner and the less they wanted to partner with China.
1: So you, you, you mentioned some of the plastics uh, and other, other garbage that's in, the, uh, that's in the ocean. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess it's called the, the Pacific Garbage Patch? what what is that and how big is that
2: well it, of course it conveys this this image of a giant a trash dump in the ocean which it it in effect is and it's because the the earth's oceans have circulation patterns uh, that look like large gyres uh, basically rotating a giant mass of rotating body of water and and the, and the way through A thing called Ekman drift, which I learned as a plea, at the Naval Academy in my oceanography courses is tends to cause uh, um, when in a rotating body of water, depending on the direction, uh, items on the surface to move towards the center, if you will. That's what's occurring. So you get this distribution of plastic and garbage, uh, like marine, like fishing nets that are discarded and whatnot, all kind of concentrated in in, in the center of the Pacific. And that's what that refers to
1: and and that's a it's a pretty big uh, collection of that floating garbage in in that uh, pacific gyre right
2: right I, I couldn't tell you the size of it and the, the fact of the matter too is it's not necessarily just one giant lo- it's distributed and you see when different islands that are uh, i guess nearby you'll see a lot of a lot of that trash pile up on some islands like midway island in the pacific island chain of hawaii the Hawaiian Islands, and that's that's an area we were cleaning up uh, massively every year.
1: Yeah, I had the same experience uh, when I was uh, the the uh, head intel officer for uh, the three ship amphibious squadron out of Japan uh, amphibious squadron eleven. Uh, we worked with the Marines. Uh, we did a, a little bit of an exercise visiting uh, Iwo Jima, and oh, wow. uh, I mean that's hallowed ground for the for the Marine Corps. Uh, everybody in America probably knows the story of what happened at Iwo Jima. And uh, the amount of garbage that we found on the beaches where the Marines landed in, in 1945 was just astounding. So we visited there mm-hmm. twice during my my two-and-a-half years uh, as the N2, and we did beach cleanups uh, each yeah. time we were there to clean those beaches completely because it is kind of hallowed ground. So you mentioned these uh, these Pacific—or uh, the currents that are in the oceans, the gyres that occur. Uh, some of the scientists that I've been reading lately are very concerned about a ocean current collapse— uh, as climate changes and uh, the ocean heating and more uh, fresh water is pumped into the ocean environment. Is this something you are concerned about at all?
2: Uh, well, that, that were it to occur, yes. But I, I think uh, some of the articles that you'll see out there are, uh, again, I think more in the implausible and extreme scenario. Now, remember, just quick education for your audience. In projecting future climate change, uh, the body that does this and writes reports an international body called the intergovernmental panel on climate change, IPCC, they have developed these emission scenarios. uh, Whereas if we're emitting a lot of greenhouse gases and don't change our way, or if we end up stopping and using more renewables and decreasing our emissions, and depending on the scenario, then you can get these different types of climate change projections. And so collapsing of the ocean currents is typically in those extreme emission scenarios which i think are very implausible and in fact again I, I just mentioned that the biden administration's own environmental protection agency has adopted the less uh, less extreme scenario where emissions actually decreased past 2030 which uh is not in any of this research a lot of the research for example there was a recent article about more ho- home runs in the national league due to climate change which was an absolute farce of an article because The science behind that was using extreme emission scenarios and it didn't objectively look at all the different baseball leagues. You know, they didn't look at Japan's league, for example, where home runs have not shown any change. It was was one of these articles that people and researchers will go and look at the most extreme possibility, even though it's implausible, just to get a headline. And so there's a lot of that out there. And I, you know, I, I have a geophysical science degree and I think, I think it's a disservice when scientists conduct research and make claims that are extreme uh, to get, uh, th- that are sensational.
1: So uh, we mentioned uh, throughout this first half hour of our show uh, that one of the responsibilities at, at NOAA is uh, is fisheries uh, management. Uh, I, I have an article in my hand that uh, talks about the U.S. Coast Guard has, has now stated illegal fishing has surpassed piracy as a global threat. Are you concerned about uh, the fish stocks around the planet and how they're being depleted?
2: Big time, absolutely yes. In fact, that press is really building upon work I was I was doing at NOAA in 2020. Even during the pandemic, I had a a uh, I was at the U.S. Coast Guard headquarters where we, me myself, the Coast Guard Commandant then Admiral Schultz, and then the U.S. Southern Command Commander, a good friend of mine, Admiral Craig Fowler. we all spoke at a panel hosted by the Center for Security and International studies downtown and we we and we issued we were basically releasing the Coast Guard strategic outlook on illegal unregulated and unreported fishing this illegal fishing activity was occurring you know, um, is occurring across the globe China is the main perpetrator and we are really concerned about the. US Southern Command and the Galapagos Islands and that's why it's Admiral Fowler o- overseeing that area of responsibility the Coast Guard commandant and I. Uh, we all got together and helped to re- release that document, and we made that statement probably for the first time that illegal fishing was a national security threat. And so that's been ongoing. And I think, and, and because as I said earlier, this is degrading the economies of critical partners in the Southern Hemisphere, in, La- in Latin America, and in uh, the Pacific.
1: Uh, so, Admiral, we have to take just a short break uh, to recognize our sponsor. We will be right back.
0: National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back.
1: We're back here on National Security this week. Uh, our, our guest is Admiral Tim Gallaudet, uh, who was the uh, acting administrator of the National Oceanographic and Admi- Atmospheric Administration. It's a mouthful. Uh, and he also uh, retired from the Navy as the uh, oceanographer of the Navy. And we're talking about the importance of the oceans to American national security. Uh, Admiral Gallaudet, let's, let's turn to the nexus of the world's oceans and American national security interests, a little bit more in the in the hard power arena. Uh, how important are the oceans to American national security? And based on your experience in the U.S. Navy and your time at NOAA, what can you tell us about how the oceans and the effective use of the marine environment keep America safe?
2: Well, there are many reasons for that uh, and, and the importance of our oceans to national security, John. Uh, First and foremost, the marine transportation system. Uh, the simplest way that China can uh, take over Taiwan is to blockade the island from shipping and uh, restrict the the incoming supplies which the country, the the, the the island depends upon. And and that that's just one example. Of course, we our own uh, U.S. economy and security and prosperity depend upon the the free flow of, of global trade. So our oceans are are, are really the life. The, the circulation system of our of our livelihood and uh, but, and so that's the marine transportation system. in terms of real you know, force projection and defense, uh, our, our, our main I would say our main battery to be honest with you is our undersea forces the, the submarine forces of the US Navy uh, because of the advantage they have in, in terms of their stealth they are uh, uh, it it's, it's, it's going to come down to in any major conflict, uh, that 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 will be the force, along with our cyber forces, really hand in hand uh, and p- probably more in the future, our space forces that will that will ensure our our defense and our victory if, if called to go forward and, and fight downrange. Uh, and of course, that wasn't the nature in the last few decades in Iraq and Afghanistan with the different nature of of terrorism and, and what was happening there. But um, now, though, with ch- great power competition, China and Russia the, the I think that is a maritime domain. You see, we'd either be in uh, the northern areas, uh, the high north, as they call the, the Arctic region of Europe and, and where Russia is, or in the Western Pacific, where China is. It's our undersea forces that will help us uh, succeed. And that which is interesting about that. So that's that's the ocean domain. And our undersea forces depend upon ocean science to succeed. Because of uh, the nature of sonar and sound propagation in the water, it depends upon the density of the ocean, the salinity, and um, and the pressure and temperature. So mapping and knowing the weather of the ocean, uh, the inside of the ocean, is critical for submarine forces to prevail. And, and that was my job in the Navy, first and foremost. I, I forecasted weather on aircraft carriers, but I also provided that ocean weather to our undersea forces.
1: And you talked earlier about mapping the ocean floor, Uh, that's also uh, critical for uh, safe, uh, effective submarine operations as well, knowing exactly what the depths are, where those seamounts are. uh, Would you say that's true?
2: Absolutely. There's a concept that was introduced by the famous explorer Robert Ballard, the discoverer of the Titanic, who's a great friend of mine. And if anybody wants to listen to a really great show, he was on my podcast about a year ago, and I interviewed him about his book. But he came up with the term seabed warfare because he was a marine geologist and he was also a naval officer, and he understood the value of knowing the undersea terrain better than the enemy or the adversary. It's just like in ground warfare, where high ground provides a tactical advantage. You have the same idea, a concept in the in the oceans today, and 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 this this revolves around our, our increasing use of autonomous systems and and a very nascent but developing undersea infrastructure to support them in addition when we think about information and you mentioned that being one of four elements of national power where does 90 percent of information flow occur it's not through imaginary lightning bolts in space to satellites it's undersea cables and we saw a great example of this seabed warfare with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline getting damn destroyed up, uh, up there during um, up in the uh, Baltic Sea, uh, providing uh, natural gas and oil to uh, Europe from Russia. So they, uh, with communications, with other undersea infrastructure, knowing our seabed and having uh, an ability to, um, uh, to operate and defend it better than the adversary, which requires intimate knowledge of the nature of that bathymetry and mapping it, uh, that, that, that is really a, a key element of advantage in our national power.
1: Now, you mentioned China a little bit. Uh, I I do want to cover a little bit more of China uh, in the uh, Indo-Pacific command, but uh, you you brought up the undersea uh, cables, submarine uh, cables, communication cables. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, I've read uh, many articles uh, lately that uh, some of these undersea cables off of Taiwan that connect Taiwan to the rest of the world, uh, ra- ...randomly get cut by uh, Chinese fishing vessels. <laughs> so yeah. that's sort of this, uh, you know, the things, the harassment that goes on out there. And I, I, there was just a great article that came out that, that showed a Russian, uh, quote-unquote, uh, research vessel uh, with guys on board who were decked out in uh, balaclava hoods and, and uh, automatic weapons. Uh, and that vessel transited through the Baltic and then out into the, the North Sea a bit and visited a lot of the wind turbine uh, generation, uh, the at-sea wind turbine generation for electricity uh, that, the, uh, that the U.K. uses, relies heavily on. Uh, and so there's a great concern about what may have been happening with that, quote-unquote, research vessel. Uh, so is this the kind of, you know, the undersea warfare, the seabed warfare that, that you know, you were concerned about uh, during your time as an admiral in the Navy and, and also, frankly, as uh, acting administrator at NOAA?
2: Oh absolutely John and, and you know you know this is a former intelligence officer that that those elements uh, uh, either in uh, Russia or China they're not accidental and, and they're purposely supported by the states and and that's that, that's just an extension of their offensive military capability hybrid warfare right Absolutely yes yeah
1: Uh now l- let me ask you this we have this term that we use in the Navy. It's called a choke point. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the ocean's choke points and, and why they are so important in, in the study uh, of oceanography uh, and understanding where those choke points are, how they function, and how they impact uh, how we think about uh, using naval power, maritime power, uh, as a result of those choke points?
2: Well, yes, you, you bet, John. In fact, uh, I mentioned it earlier that uh, the free flow of trade over our, our, over our oceans uh, is so critical for our national security and economic security and there are these regions of the ocean where that trade uh, the these shipping routes uh tend to be constrained and can easily be blocked because of their small area and then we and we have a few of these around the world the straits of malacca the strait is over near the in the western pacific we have the strait of hormuz uh, uh, on the southern port uh, part of the arabian gulf and where m- much of the world's oil supply transits through, and then um, and there are others too. Uh, but those are probably the two most well known. The Panama Canal is another, actually. And if any of those were to be uh, blocked, uh, like and in fact, a great example last year, or two years ago, was the the uh, MV Ever Given when it blocked the re- the uh, the um, in the the Suez, Red Sea, the, the Suez, Suez Canal. Canal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have somewhere here the order of the ditch. I've gone through there. That's the Navy way of recognizing <laughs> you going through that uh, small body of water. And when, when that sh- the Ever Given blocked it for several days, uh, some serious economic impact. So uh, yes, that, so that's that's the point of, of ensuring choke points uh, are uh, open, open and accessible by global shipping, and and then there and they are therefore are strategic in terms of keeping open and defending. And that, that was a big reason why uh, you know we, we the U.S. was so uh, has had such a heavy Middle East presence. Is the Arabian Gulf was strategic to the world in terms of uh, uh, providing energy, and we were determined as a nation to keep that body of water open. And uh, for th- those reasons.
1: Uh, so I know uh, you spent time supporting both U.S. Indo-Pacific Command from an oceanography perspective, uh, and you've worked on uh, Arctic Ocean issues uh, at NOAA and as an as the oceanographer of the Navy. If, let, let's let's focus a little bit more on uh, on the Arctic, if we could. Um, what are America's national security interests in the Arctic region, and how does oceanography support our security interests in that uh, in that region? And how will climate change alter those security calculations, specifically up in the Arctic?
2: Well, of course, uh, John. Thanks. In the Arctic, one of the critical considerations is is our our partnerships. Look at uh, Canada and in the, in the the Baltic states, Finland, Norway, Sweden. These are critical allies for us. And you just saw Finland join NATO. Sweden's considering it. So, so I think one of the most important elements of Arctic national security is the partnerships there, which are very very strong. Uh, and you know, it, 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 and and. On the flip side is our relationship with Russia, which is at the most antagonistic it's ever been in the last half century, probably, and and that's a very big concern, knowing that's a nuclear uh, capable country and all the rhetoric coming out, uh, and and so the, on the, those are the sort of the yin and yang, the contrasting aspects of our national security posture in the Arctic, um, and so the stronger we can uh, uh, reinforce our alliances. And the and the more we can maintain an advantage over Russia, uh, the, the better, which is a risky thing to do, again, because of their their nuclear saber rattling that, that you hear. Uh, but I, I think ultimately, though, that that's a place for opportunity. So the uh, the Arctic is changing the region and there are some winners and losers right in the in Alaska, for example, melting, perma, thawing permafrost is having a serious impact on infrastructure up there. And that's 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 a problem. But then again, uh, we, when you we see the increased growing season in, in the high north, that that could potentially for Russia especially lead to economic gain. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a shame that Russia has done what they've done in Ukraine, because if, if an objective person sat back and saw what was happening, Russia really stood to gain in, in the climate change uh, arena because if you look at the northern sea route in that region, not only would they see more shipping go through and potentially and they've talked about potentially imposing um, fees for piloting and et cetera, and making making money off that. But also look at the look at the geography of that that region. If you were to take Russia's northern boundary and coastline. And turn it upside down. It would look like the Gulf of Mexico, and in fact, it would look like the Gulf of Mexico on steroids because there's three major rivers that empty into it, like the Mississippi. So you have all this this ocean continental shelf, which is vast, stores vast uh, supplies of natural gas. So Russia just really, um, just really made a, a big strategic mistake in not in, in going after Ukraine instead of stepping back and capitalizing off the energy and, and all the other economic uh, gain that can happen from that region warming.
1: Yeah, and the, the Russians have been investing in improving their port facilities up on the Arctic Ocean, uh, and with climate uh, climate change uh, giving more access to those ports, maybe even year-round in the not-too-distant future, uh, they can get in and and start logging some of those massively huge forests, the Taiga Forest, uh, up in that part of the uh, of the world. And that's another natural resource they can tap into, uh, but that might be uh, a little challenging for them uh, going forward. Let me ask you this. Exactly. Uh, back to the Pacific theater. Um, I have a little uh, Associated Press article here that talked about Japan, ocean policy, vows tougher security amid China threat. So China, China, Japan just recently adopted a five-year ocean policy plan, uh, just to, just to back uh, about a week ago now, uh, the new basic plan on ocean policy is uh, is something that Japan has adopted. It's it's uh, uh, the policy is about their exclusive economic zone. It's about uh, concern, concerns from foreign quote unquote survey boats, uh, you know Chinese fishing fleets, uh, Chinese coast guard vessels, uh, their maritime uh, militia, etc. Pressing China's or Japan's uh, territorial claims uh, throughout the region. Are there other countries that are sort of moving more aggressively towards having these uh, really well thought out, organized ocean policy plans uh, that the U.S. can support?
2: Right. Well, yes, they are either in the works or they other countries have already adopted them. And it's a lot of the Pacific Islands uh, nations I've mentioned and in various forms, they're adopting policies to uh, as you as as Japan is doing to counter China's negative influence, and, and as the US has done as well, and we did this during my time at NOAA, I was on the, the, the White House Ocean Policy Committee, and we issued forth every year um, policy statements on the our use of the oceans and and their role in our natu- national, natural, and economic security, and other nations see that too. And that, that's really, again, why I, when I was at NOAA, had so much international engagement Uh, capitalizing on those desires and interests in terms of advancing these other partner nations, ocean policies for their benefit. Uh, in fact, I mean, just to give you some examples, um, I sure earned frequent flyer miles when I was there. (laughs) I went to, uh, I've been to new Caledonia, North of, um, uh, Australia for a, a a large scientific ocean conference. I've been to Tuvalu, a very small country for a, uh, an annual event called the Pacific Island Forum. And I went there with the Secretary of Interior, David Bernhardt. Uh, I've been to Hawaii for a big international conference that we called the PRIMO Conference, which was about promoting coastal resilience for all the Pacific Island nations. And, and I've met with presidents and prime ministers of, of Marshall Islands, the Cook Islands, uh, American Samoa, um, oh, pardon me, Samoa. Uh, and then I've also met with uh, senior officials in American Samoa. And um, and I, the list goes on and on. So the Pacific matters, and that's the point. And it's it did then, it does now. And uh, those partnerships are really just key for our our, our national security.
1: So you visited all these uh, wonderful uh, idyllic paradise locations in the uh, in the South Pacific and why the heck are you living in Maryland? <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, that, well, because uh, uh, good good point, good point. Um well, our family's nearby, uh, oh, okay, my, my right. parents and okay. my wife's yeah. parents, but we get back there as much as I can. Actually, I had been to Fiji as well and uh and 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 Palau, the Republic of Palau, which is near the Philippines. Yeah. Uh and that time this is kind of a neat example of the ocean and security I was the chair of the US coral reef task force There was such a thing and if that job sounds cool it was and my job was to promote and protect the conservation of American coral reefs and those of our partners and we have a strong partnership with the Republic of Palau as well as the Marshall Islands and um, and 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 uh, they were part of our task force And we were adopting a number of national policies and creating them and refining them to, again, promote the health of coral reefs. Why does that matter? Well, the coral reefs are, first of all, they're national treasures in terms of their biodiversity. I've been diving all around the world, and I just never, never get tired of coral reef diving. But secondly, they're the nurseries of fisheries. And again, I mentioned fisheries being so economically important to us and our partners. Well, that's where fisheries really kind of originate or sustained by and then you also have this other important component of being barriers to inundation so for example florida's coral reef track system is critical to reducing the impact of storm surge from hurricanes and uh and so those those benefits are really vast and and then as a coral reef diver the tourism and recreation value of them is is another one so uh and and in doing that understanding that 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 ocean health um, aspect of, of, of coral reefs, therefore using it as a as a diplomacy and security tool to partner with other nations like Palau. For example, Palau, being where it is, it's it's China is wor- working is has tried to invest in the island and has tried to really take it over America's role in being a preferred partner, and and that coral reef initiative as well as a partnership that I initiated between our marine protected area it's an underwater park basically in american samoa and the republic of palau both have these protected areas and we signed i signed an agreement that the president of palau signed where those two sanctuaries are now cooperating on coral reef conservation and science and if anyone gets to the pacific and has a chance to dive in palau or american samoa do it because those are like the redwood forests of coral they're magnificent
1: I agree. I was fortunate enough to dive the blue corner in uh, in Palau and uh, around some of the Rock Islands. It was, uh, it was uh, to this day, uh, the only other place that even comes close was the Great Barrier Reef in, in, in Australia.
2: Uh, so when did far, you do that?
1: Uh, while I was assigned in Japan. Uh, for nice, our audience, nice. you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet, who's the former acting administrator of NOAA and the former oceanographer of the United States Navy. And we're discussing the oceans of the world and their importance to many aspects of American national security. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet, we have about uh, 11 minutes remaining in the show today. What investments should America be making right now in ocean-sensing technologies to better equip ourselves for future challenges? What, What kind of technologies would commercial shipping, the U.S. Navy, the Coast Guard, and our allies and friends around the world benefit from if said technologies were fielded, in other words, funded by Congress and uh, allied and friendly governments.
2: Right. Well, there's a number that exists now that we would, I, I believe, we should continue to fund, and they include both sort of fixed assets like moored buoys that are constantly measuring the ocean, temperature circulation, chemical composition, and these are operated by NOAA for research and for shipping, safe shipping, and things like that. Uh, then there's also a, a, an increasing fleet of autonomous vehicles that, and vessels, surface vessels. Uh, NOAA has several, and they're re- really transitioning all their ships to be mother ships of these uncrewed surface vessels. And that's really neat. And they're mapping the seafloor and also monitoring the ocean's conditions uh, for research and for the, again, the the marine shipping and benefits and also the public safety benefits by predicting uh, storm surges and, and, and hazardous weather, both at sea and along our coast. Uh, increasingly, satellite, a remote sensing capability to measure the ocean. NOAA's uh, moving forward to uh, deploy some ocean color instruments on satellites. To, that helps mo- monitor the health of oceans and fisheries. Um, but I'll tell you right now, uh, so all of that, uh, uh, drone technology, ships, satellites, aircraft, but uh, of all those, what America really needs to invest in is people, our youth and STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. That's the, those are the people that will operate this to apply these technologies for the benefit of understanding our ocean, uh, protecting it, and sustainable use of the ocean in, in terms of its contribution to a blue economy. And, and it's, it's people who have an a education in the technology and the science and in the, um, the 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 policy making aspects that that those enable,
1: is is Congress going to need to think about uh, funding improvements to uh, American port infrastructure? I mean, even if even if we keep sea level rise to a foot, or or you know, I mean, that's going to impact uh, the, the 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 port infrastructure. Is that something that we should be investing in now? I know at our alma mater, the Naval Academy, they just broke ground on a brand new seawall. Because they've been dealing with uh, significant storm surges at, at king tides and whatnot, is that something that should be funded? The the, the port. I infrastructure? think so. And
2: in fact, uh, large investments have been made in our ports over the years. And and I've been working with the American Association of Port Authorities to promote that exact message to Congress. I've been I've been to that seawall project, by the way, because Naples is not very far from where I live. And, uh, and, yeah, and I've seen the flooding there, too, that was occurring and, and reason for that project. So those, those projects are occurring, and I do believe those investments are necessary uh, because of their incredible contribution to our economy. U.S. seaports, I think, in 2018 contributed to one-third of our GDP. It was something on the order of $5.6 trillion. That's, that, our sea, we are a maritime nation, and our seaports are the lifeblood of our economy.
1: And that goes back to the founding of our, of our country. The, the Northeast was the, the heart of our maritime uh, economy. Uh, so, Dr. Gallaudet, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Uh, let me ask you two final things. Uh, what do you see happening uh, with regard to the, the ocean environment that deeply concerns you? And then on the flip side of that, what do you see happening that truly inspires you about, for the future of the oceans, uh, protecting the oceans, and, 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 and anything else with regard to the oceans?
2: Well, first, thank you, John, for having me. It's great to be on your show. I like what you're doing, and I love that you're giving this message about national security to uh, your audience. And uh, I'm actually not overly concerned about all the the harm that's being done by the ocean because I've seen a sea change in the public's understanding and attitude towards the ocean. In the last decade, for example, funding for ocean conservation has doubled to nearly $2 billion dollars. And, and that's only increasing right now. So I, I'm part of a number of nonprofits and other efforts that are addressing ocean conservation. And I've just seen a, a kind of a, a, a an amazing, major shift in America's attitude towards the ocean. People want to protect it. They love sea life, even if they don't live near the ocean. And so that is encouraging. And I, I'm, I'm on a campaign to promote more of it. Uh, my biggest concern is, is uh, as we talked about, is it's china because they don't share our values towards the ocean and you see all the harm they're doing to it illegal fishing marine plastic pollution greenhouse gas emissions that are far outstrip ours and and all of those are contributing to damages which we've already talked about and so i think the more that we can influence other nations to partner with us and and in time uh do influence china for the same then that then therefore the the benefits to our ocean and to our society at large.
1: So there's a lot of value in the soft power side of uh, sharing of information and economic engagement and helping a lot of these uh, partner nations all across the world who have uh, significant uh, I- investments or rely heavily on the oceans uh, to make sure that we are looking out for them, the little the little guys, so to speak. Uh, partnered up with them is is that is that something you would advocate for that soft power? Absolutely. Engagement?
2: Yes, I absolutely do. I think that's just critical going forward. And if we care about our ocean and our our national, natural and economic security, then increasing the partnerships we have with our Pacific Island and other coastal uh, states, uh, the the better. And I'm pleased that we are doing that, regardless of administration, by the way. Uh, I think uh, and I like the fact that that's a bipartisan, uh, really apolitical issue of of being a better partner to uh, nations like that
1: let me put you on the spot uh the un convention on the law of the sea uh you and i are both career naval officers i think we agree that that uh, that convention is actually really helpful uh for the navy for the coast guard uh for our partner nations our uh, partners around the world uh should should the should the us senate finally ratify that
2: absolutely <laughs> i I've, I've said so at, at, during hearings and uh, congressional hearings and in public As you know, it's a long story for our audience, but ultimately, there's a small group in Congress who think that siding to an international convention like this would somehow uh, infringe upon our our sovereign status and ability to be independent as a nation. And I think, you know, the days of that kind of um, uh, isolationism are over. (laughs) We're too globally connected to think like that. Yeah.
1: Uh, So a couple last questions before we uh, have to end our show. I I believe you have a book coming out next year. Could uh, you tell us a little bit about that book? What was the catalyst for it, and what's the title?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking, John. I have a book coming out next year. It's uh, my story, if you will, from the Navy to my time at this ocean agency, NOAA, and it's called Holding Fast in Heavy Seas, Leading America's Top Ocean Agency in Turbulent Times. And it's really a book about leadership. It's, I, I don't say tell everything I, in my story, if you will. It's not a memoir, but um, I I I, talk, I share how I learned lessons in leadership uh, by my naval service, and then when I came to NOAA, it was it was leading an, an agency and being a political appointee are very different uh, aspects of, <laughs> of, of of my service compared to what, what I did in the navy, and and trying to keep uh, I guess my the the ship sailing on an even course and an even keel. Pardon me, straight course and even keel, was sometimes not easy. And that's that I just tell the story of exactly that, trying to trying to stay uh, true to my leadership ethic of service uh, while uh, serving at, at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration.
1: Do you have a release date for that book yet?
2: I don't. I'm still working with two potential publishers, and uh, I, I just I'm hoping it'll come out in the spring of 2024.
1: Okay. We'll be looking for that. You also have a podcast you mentioned a little bit, the, the American Blue Economy. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that podcast? And uh, are you on a mission yeah. to educate people about the blue economy?
2: Well, I wouldn't call it a mission, but it's, it's something I enjoy and have fun with. And so this American Blue Economy podcast, it treats a number of aspects of our ocean, coastal, and Great Lake-based economies – and from this, I discuss science. I discuss people and education. I go into um, a number of different aspects of the, the the local economies, for example, like dive tourism and scuba dive tourism or um, fisheries, etc. It's just really what I do. That for is fun. I have a great network of people I work with across my career, and it's just a great way to stay in touch with them and hear about what they're doing. Uh, my uh, last few episodes have been about technologies and their, their contributions to ocean and coastal economies like uncrewed systems like satellites and uh I have a, f- a few episodes on scuba diving and dive tourism and i again i had a uh, robert ballard the discoverer of titanic on one of my shows so uh where ocean technologies and exploration technologies that he pioneered how they contribute to now our our, our marine economy and transportation system so it's just something I have fun with. And if people care about the ocean and, and how we use it sustainably, uh, give it a shot.
1: And it's called the American Blue Economy. I'm assuming they can people can find that on any, any of the major podcast services.
2: That's right. That's
1: okay. right. So, Admiral, we're down just a couple minutes. Uh, I always try to give my guests the final word. Uh, what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners regarding the oceans of the world? What What is it you have learned about the oceans, their importance to life on our planet, their nexus to national security, et
2: cetera, throughout your career in the U.S. Navy and your time as the acting administrator at NOAA? Thanks, John. It's great to be here and a great question. I, I, To me, the oceans are our greatest resource. Space is interesting, and I, I, and I know we, as, as a society, we're moving back to go to the moon and Mars, and that is brilliant and wonderful. And all the technology spinoffs that NASA has provided have been great. For our nation and for the world. However, we still have an inner space in the world's oceans that's largely unexplored and undiscovered. And and we already know, for what we do know, we know it's incredibly beautiful and diverse and um, sustaining in terms of the natural resources the ocean provides. So I encourage everyone to look under the hood and try to learn more about our world's oceans.
1: Rare Admiral Tim Gallaudet, your CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Where can people find the, the website uh, for your company?
2: That Just that, Ocean STL, and you'll, you'll Google it and you'll get it.
1: All right. Tim Gallaudet, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a great discussion. Thanks, John. It's great what you're doing. Keep it up. All right. Folks, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.